Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, joiners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders, past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast with myself, Ayan, Anya, George, Lauren, on 3CR Community Radio, 8.55am. So the bell that you just heard was supposed to alert you to our summer school programming. (laughs) Three bells now. Three bells. (laughs) We'll work on that. (laughs) Technology, hey. Mm. So what are we doing for summer school today? Summer school. Today we're talking about feminism. Mm -hmm. Everything to do with feminism, we've got different guests and each guest will talk about an aspect of feminism that resonates with them. So at the first interview that actually we're going to play is with Rosie Kalina, who is a visual artist and Proud Wemba Wemba and Kunjamara woman. She is a makeup artist. She is also, um, so she's worked in television. She's worked in film, in editorial. The sis has done everything. So I um, spoke to her last week about feminism and what feminism means to her. And I, I also got her to answer the question whether you can be a feminist and wear makeup because that's. I've, I've heard that's anti-feminist, so we'll see what she has to say. And so we might go straight into that interview. We've got a big day ahead. A feminist to me is someone who is pro-woman. I do find it a little bit hard sometimes in certain contexts to actually call myself straight up a feminist just because of the way that white women have hijacked the word feminism. So I'm always, you know, calling myself pro-woman, pro, you know, pro-black woman, pro-Aboriginal, um, and I'm always trying to find my place within feminism as an Aboriginal woman. But I think ultimately it's someone that wants equity. To me, it's not about equality because, you know, as women, we're mm. so below where men are, and then as Aboriginal women and women of colour, we're, like, even lower than that. So it's not actually about, to me, about being at the same level as white men, but about actually achieving equity and seeing justice is for ourselves. And an ethic of feminism that I feel like we could all agree on is self-love, and self-love, as you know, it's an ongoing journey, can you share with us what it's been like coming into your skin? Self-love, yeah. It's, a, it's hard to answer because it's a constant journey and process. Mm. 
it's always, you know, one step forward and a ten step back for me. You know, coming into my skin. Um, just thinking recently about like representation on on TV or in media. I, you know, I see people that look like me, right? I'm I'm light skin and all that. So I see people that look like me, but I don't see people who are actually like me and actually are of my race being Aboriginal. And that really makes it hard for me to be able to relate to a lot of the mainstream ideas of self-care. So I guess I rely a lot on my elders and my beautiful mum and my titters and my sisters, my community to reflect to me what self-care is. Mm. I'm a self-love, actually. Um, also self-care. Mm. Uh, but self-love, yeah, it's a constant battle in this colony, I think, to actually truly uh, come into my own skin and be completely confident because there's always this kind of voice in the back of my head saying, you know, you're not worthy, you know, that kind of how it is. But I think reminding myself and keeping mob around me who uplift me and Mm. just kind of reminding myself that I am worthy, Mm. um, even if the colony doesn't think so. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah. I'm really excited about discussing community support with you later and when we discuss the black matriarchy which is a really interesting term and I can't wait to really unpack that but let's go to Black to the Future exhibition it was an exhibition that you were part of in 2018 can you tell us what the exhibition was about and what were some take-home messages can't believe it was 2018 as in last year right yeah it was such a experience. It was really, really immersive and took quite a long time, which I'm really um, glad that I had that time to do that. Basically, it was Footscray Community Arts Centre wanting a young person-led and black exhibition to coincide with Womenja Festival, which is an annual festival that celebrates Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders every year. Um, and it just has heaps of musicians and, and art exhibitions, and it's great, and it's all that sort of good community arts center. And Hannah Monfi, Walsh, and I were brought on as curators, so we kind of teamed up together and started to work together and brainstorm, and we just knew from the get-go that we wanted something that would reflect a future that we wanted to see. At the time, there was that whole sunrise debacle Mm. with, um, you know, the panel of all white people talking about Aboriginal kids. And we just were kind of wanting to not even think about how we were held down by colonialism. We didn't even want to think about whiteness when we went in this. We were just seeing a future that we had and our own autonomy and our own sovereignty and, you know, oftentimes young people are left out of the picture in the arts world. Mm. So we went into it just wanting to basically create something really black, really deadly, really immersive and safe as well. Because often, 
you know, art spaces are so cold and sterile. So we wanted the complete opposite of that. We wanted something really fun and somewhere where you can just feel like you're at home. Yeah, because I, yeah. I, I went to a, um, not the launch or the closing, but I went to a, like, an, an, uh, an afternoon and one thing I noticed, the vibe, was very, it felt like being in your living room. Like each yeah. session was like part of your room. That's, it was really lovely. Yes, well, uh, Savannah Kruger and I, we actually created the Black Oasis, which was a space inside of the gallery, in the Rosalind Morgan Gallery at Swisscray Arts Centre. And it was meant to be a place of reflection and just a place to hang out. And so we had beanbags and little cushions in there and and we had a board where people could write the, like our little messages themselves. And it was just meant to be a place of basically self-care and a place to reflect and, and sit and yarn and have a good time. Because exactly, I'm so glad you said the word lounge room because mm. that's exactly what we wanted it to be like. We just wanted it to be like a you know, a feeling of actually stepping into a real, like, community house, basically, and just be able to sit down and feel comfortable, yeah. Mm. And speaking of deadly women, black matriarchy, I always hear this term being used a lot, and I don't know if it's um, in the popular discourse, but those of us who know, know, but black matriarchy, can you tell us what that means and why it's important? Absolutely. Black matriarchy, I think, is connecting to what I was saying before about white feminism and my kind of uncomfortable feeling around that, you know, that discussion of of what feminism is and kind of white women hijacking feminism because black matriarchy to me is my feminism Mm. and it's something that I'm the most comfortable in seeing in. Yeah. So it's you know, when I think of black matriarchy, I think of my mother, I think of my grandmother, I think of my aunties, you know, my late great-grandmother who I was named after, Nanny Rosie. You know, I, I just think of the women who were matriarchal before even, you know, English was here to have those words to describe us, you know, because um, with with my mob, you know, Wemba Wemba and Gunachmara, but Wemba Wemba in particular... I know that we were very matriarchal, that everything, you know, we were the message carriers and we we held story and there was a lot of importance on matriarchy and it still is something continuing. So Mm. it's very, very, very important to me. Mm. And the word black, I've noticed it's spelled B-L-A-K. Is that intentional? Yeah. Yeah, it sure is. So it actually was coined by Destiny Deacon, who is an incredible artist, um, Aboriginal woman. And she coined it in the 90s. So she's she's an artist and she used it as a way to differentiate Aboriginal people um, from, I guess, how do I describe this? Like as in for urban Aboriginal people to describe mm. themselves and have an identity yeah. that was separate to just general black with a C. Mm. Uh, ultimately, yeah, it's just another way of describing ourselves and having 
a specific way of calling ourselves, you know, Aboriginal Black. So you're a curator, but you're also a makeup artist and a very good one at that. And for those listening, you can find Rosie's work on Insta at Rosie Kalina, R-O-S-I-E-K-A-L-I-N-A, one word, and we'll definitely share it on our Facebook and Instagram page. (laughs) Thanks for the plug. No, no, we've got to. Um, (laughs) But some folks might say makeup um, is anti-feminist. Can you wear makeup and still be a feminist? That's a really good question because... I'm always having this kind of back and forth with people, usually on Twitter, Mm. (laughs) and usually with cis men who tend to always kind of try and put women down for wearing makeup, or or boys or whoever wearing makeup, um, saying that, oh, you don't really love yourself, and, you know, men don't like makeup, men like natural girls, and I think what feminism is to me, what black, black matriarchy is to me, is actually wearing whatever makes you feel comfortable and actually using it as a way of resistance, I suppose, because I grew up very, always very, very girly, very femme, and been proud of that. But then when I got into high school, I noticed there was a lot of shame around it for me, and I kind of stepped back, I suppose, because I thought that it was uh, a sign of weakness almost. And mm. I, I always I always look at it like this. You know, when a woman dresses up in a suit, right, for instance, someone like Angelina Jolie on the red carpet, everyone applauds her and, and says, you know, how strong and how powerful does this woman look? You know, it's even called a power suit, right? Yeah. But then when a man, you know, a cis man, usually an AFL player on one of those, you know, silly weeks, whatever they do, dresses up in a dress, mm. uh, it's seen as comedic. Yeah. And I wonder why that is, you know? I wonder what it is with femininity linked to being ridic- ridic- like ridiculous or yeah. just weak. So I think, you know what? I, I love makeup and I see it as... Um, just an expression of self, yes. and I think it can be really empowering. So, you know, I think people's, women's choices or whoever's choice to wear makeup or not to wear any at all is so based in, like, our freedom of choice, and I think that's a beautiful thing. Absolutely, and it's weird because people think if, like, even if we stopped wearing makeup, sexism wouldn't disappear. <laughs> Exactly, yeah, totally, yeah. My aunties, when I was really young, I saw them, like, they'd put, um, I forgot the English word, but so it's like eyeliner, and mm. it's something that's natural, and it's not done for the male gaze as well. That's another issue that I've noticed, that people think... Yeah, oh, exactly. They, <laughs> they just centre themselves so much, and they don't actually realise that I don't, when I put makeup on, I know that, you know, a regular kind of like cis guy out there isn't going to know the difference between me having gold eyelids <laughs> or not. <laughs> yeah. They really won't know the difference. And in fact, if anything, I'm kind of doing it for other girls because they're the people that notice, you know, and and for myself ultimately. And I think it's, it's funny because it just centers like 
heteronormative kind of notions of what men want, but also relating to what you were saying, um, saying with your, your family. I've been told stories from my mob of how we would adorn ourselves, you know, for thousands of years. And that's something that we still do. And my grandmother, you know, never goes anywhere without her beautiful gold rings and without her lipstick and you know, her beautiful coats. And she would just always take a lot of pride in how she looks. Mm. And it's not necessarily something that she does to impress other people. It's just something that she takes pride in herself. And I know that our women have been doing that for thousands of years, mm. just in different ways, you know. Right, and it's yeah. It's also it's also create um, connecting communities as well. On like I've noticed on social media, especially like makeup artists are creating community, especially for Black women. Um, growing yeah. up in Australia, as you obviously know, um, I'm 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 a dark skinned Black woman, and uh, you know it's really hard to find makeup that's my skin tone, and yeah. even models in the nineties, even early two thousands. Like, it was really hard for them to find makeup. And now with social media, it's connecting people who might not have had the chance to connect. Um, Yeah, it's so beautiful because you've got Rihanna that just (laughs) stepped up and just showed every other makeup line how it's done and didn't make excuses and actually came out with 40 shades on her first release. Mm. And I think that's amazing. And I don't think it would have been able to have, like, the magnitude without social media, without mm. people saying, hey, this is unfair. I want to be able to, you know, buy my shade. And I I, I think, like, I, I do find social media toxic most of the time. Mm. However, I do love Instagram because on, on the subject of that, you know, with my body positivity, it's changed so much since being on Instagram because before Instagram, all I would see was, skinny white girls like super skinny and I remember in high school wanting to look like that like I wanted a thigh gap and I wanted to have my collarbone sticking out and then when I actually finally said okay I don't have the body for that that's just not realistic for me I have curves I have my mother's curves you know Mm. that's something I should be proud of I actually see people that reflect that on my screen Mm. and it's actually so beautiful and empowering for me. Like, it just makes me so happy to see um, people like Paloma, uh, what was she? She was on the Nike campaign, you know? Mm. Seeing thick and fat and just beautifully curvy women actually mm. being represented in fitness, you know, and and not just super skinny white girls. Um, finally... What's one message you'd like to send out to women and them identifying people who might not be at the stage that they want to be at? I think be kind to yourself and take it one day at a time. Don't allow other people's opinions of you to validate your beauty and other people's beauty even the absence of your own. Compassion of self is the biggest killer of confidence. And even though every day this colony makes us feel ugly and unworthy, just know that your ancestors are looking out for you.
And that beautiful interview was with Rosie Carlina. Rosie Carlina, as we said earlier, is a visual artist and proud Wemba Wemba and Gunjumara woman. Rosie specializes in makeup artistry with a large national and international Instagram following as Rosie Carlina, one word, and works in fashion, television and film, editorial and live events. You're listening to Summer School on Tuesday Breakfast at 3CR. That track was by an artist called Boog Brown from the States and it was called Act Like You Know. And so, yeah, this is our summer school series. Today's episode is on feminism and we're going to go to another pre-record interview, I believe. Yes, we are. <clears throat> Sorry, my there's a frog in my throat. So it's with Auntie Janet Torpy Johnstone. Um, who is an Aboriginal elder, researcher and storyteller. She's also a board member at Malam Malam Indigenous Gathering Place and a board member on Born Dorwen William Aboriginal Healing Service. And Auntie Janet will discuss what it means to rewrite the story of country and place. I'm a, an elder out here in the outer east of Melbourne. My ancestry comes from uh, way over in the Nullarbor of South Australia and here in Victoria. I have I was born in Portland, so that's my homeland. I'm chairperson of the board of Bundawan Willem Aboriginal Healing Service. On the board of Mullamullam Indigenous Gathering Place and Burringer um, Art and Cultural Centre. Mm. I also teach at university and I'm a scholar at ANU working on a, um, a PhD research project around humans' relationship with lands and waters. I think storytelling is crucial to human story. What it is to be human is to be a storyteller. But um, Aboriginal governance governed by narratives. Quite specific and interesting narratives. It's part of my research is to think about what those narratives were. We see them as story, but in um, an Aboriginal understanding is our law. It was a legal... a system based on relationships, particularly relationships with the land. After all, we're dependent on the land and waters. Mm. So these stories were ways of understanding oneself in one's place. So for me, story is that sort of essence of who we are both as humans, but of how Indigenous people engage their, their reality. And when I, when I, you know, as a teacher, teachers are about telling stories. Yeah. Breaking them up into bits, so little bits, so people can understand processes of how we we negotiate our way through relationships and through the world. Mm. We, as we negotiate our way in the 21st world, really struggle with how to do that. How do we take back those stories, particularly the stories of, of place, the stories of the country? Um, but I think if we don't take them back, we will just be part of a world that's annihilating the planet. And I'm somebody whose research is saying we need these stories. We need these stories of how to relate to the trees and the, the land and the waters and the animals for us all to keep this planet alive, to keep this planet uh, green and um, and brimming with life. Because it's not just about humans. And Aboriginal stories were about the whole ecosystem, the whole, the whole relationship. Mm. And I'm somebody who's very passionate about, one, we may not be able to grab the ancestral stories back. How do we make our own stories 
to make this alive now in the 21st century. So I think it's, I think it's imperative. Um, for me, the spirit of the Aboriginal people is all that ancestral tradition is still very much alive in the in in who we are as, as Aboriginal communities. It's still very much there. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what survived, not just our biological selves, but that spirit that, um, that inhabited this planet for those tens of thousands of years. For me, it's still alive, not just within the, the, the people in our communities, within the landscape itself. And, and, and as, as, as brittle and as broken and as fragile as that is and getting beaten up more and more and more, I still think somehow it permeates the very soils and the very waters that we live on. And I, I have a sort of strong sense of feeling that that it's somehow trying to nurture us. It's somehow trying to inspire us to live more, um, um, more than just we're just surviving mm. and that word just sort of implies that we're just struggling on mm. but that sense that we do have a right to these lands yeah. and we do have a right how it's governed and more than a right just to participate um, and that this sort of sense of, of survival is giving that motivation to somehow build on what we know of our ancestors and for me, that, that sense that we are, we are tapping into that all the time. That interview was with Auntie Janet Torpy Johnstone, who is an Aboriginal elder, researcher and storyteller. She is also a board member at Malam Malam Indigenous Gathering Place and a board member at Boondawan William Aboriginal Healing Service. Um, she discussed what it means to be a storyteller and why it's important to own your narrative. Um, she's also part of the Belgrave Survival Day, which is on January 26th. And if you want to check that out, it's at Borthwick, B-O-R-T-H-W-I-C-K Park, Benson Street, Balgrave. And we will put up all that information on our Tuesday and Instagram pages. Thank you for that interview. And now we are really excited to be joined live in the studio by Dr. Jordana Silverstein, who is an academic in historical and philosophical oh my God, <laughs> studies at Melbourne Uni. Um, thank you so much for joining us to talk about feminism today. Oh, thanks so much for having me along. Um, so as you know, on summer school, we're trying to get back to the basics and bring the academic to the airwaves. Oh, my God. How have we not used that as our tagline? Before? <laughs> um, so can we go right back to the basics and yep. how would you define feminism? Yeah. So I've been thinking about that a lot and how hard it is to define mm-hmm. feminism. Um, I think because it's so many things to so many people Mm. and I think that's necessarily a good part of feminism is that it's each of us in the room and everybody listening will have their own definition of what feminism is. So I don't think like, and there's no one like academic description Mm. of what it is. So yeah, so I'm a historian and, and, um, I've taught, you know, gender history and issues of sexuality and that kind of stuff as well as done activist stuff. And I was women's officer at Student Union at Melbourne Uni back in the day, <laughs> um, way too long ago. But um, 
I think, you know, it's about, for me, um, feminism is about radical change. It's about um, solidarities um, amongst women, primarily, but not just amongst women, um, I think. Um, it's about recognising um, the problems of patriarchy. Uh, it's about naming it. It's about naming things, but also not categorising in a way that is um, unreflective. Mm-hmm. I think it's a um, – because I'm a bit of postmodernist, I think it's a project of deconstruction. Mm-hmm. It's a project of recognising power relationships mm-hmm. um, and working to undo them. So it has to also be about catering mm-hmm. um, what's going on. Um, I think a feminist analysis that um, lets things slide or just describes – while describing is important, you also need to be doing the work mm. to undo um, the very real violence that we see um, in our homes and our streets and, and our mm. workplaces and, and every aspect of our lives um, every day in very different ways. So it's also about recognising context and recognising that mm. women live very different lives um, depending on our histories, on our families, on our context. So I think... It's about thinking critically and acting ethically yeah. um, and challenging um, what's going on, working on in, to um, create something radically new, I think for me, is yeah. what the feminist project is. And I know that's kind of vague as well. No, I but, maybe haven't said enough about like women or something. But, but that's real in it because feminism is not necessarily about centering women all the time. It's about dismantling the patriarchy and about as you say, I think what I love about that description is it it really highlights the nuance that's needed in feminism a lot of the time. And when we are talking about power relationships that seep into the home and that seep into the workplace, it's not always black and white. Yep. And you're right in that it's it's process rather than blunt tool and Yeah. yeah. I think exactly. Yeah. Mm. It's about process and it's about um and it's an ongoing project. Mm. It's never done. Um, and I think a good feminist thinker and actor will be constantly um, rethinking mm. and refining um, how they approach the world, how they approach um, interpersonal relationships. Um, and, yeah, it's a constant project. Mm. And I, I guess to clarify, when I say, like, there's an importance in acting, that doesn't mean acting in any particular way. It doesn't mean any mm. kind of demand that you need to be out there on the streets or you need to be online or, you know, I think that's the important work of feminism is done in a million different ways mm. um, and it's also feminism is ideally non- non-judgmental, I guess, of <laughs> people's approaches. Wouldn't that be nice? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so... Because you are a historian, I was really, I was very excited that you were coming in because this question is one mm-hmm. that I think gets a lot of people riled up and really also a lot of, there's a lot of misunderstanding. Um, and so we often talk about the waves of feminism. Yep. And so I was wondering if you could unpack for our listeners what the hell that means. Sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so there's a few different answers to that. Okay. So on a like um, descriptive level, what we call the waves are, so first wave tends to be sort of the suffrage movements um, that operate. And when we're talking about the suffrage movements, we're talking about them in the in um, uh, sort of Anglo countries, mm-hmm. um, broadly speaking. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're talking about, yeah, Australia, um, UK, US, um 
kinds of things, Canada, New Zealand, those kinds of things. So we're talking turn um, 18th, 19th century is sort of first wave. Second wave, we're talking about uh, what's called women's liberation movement. Um, so 70s um, and that kind of uh, moment of activism. Mm-hmm. Um, and then third wave, we're talking about the kind of 90s Spice Girls, um, mm-hmm. that kind of you know, um, yeah, I always think of the Spice Girls and I always felt stupid until right now because so does that story. And I think, you know, for those of us who grew up with Spice Girls, it was totally a moment. Um, and yeah, I'm definitely not knocking Spice Girls for Mm -hmm. sure. Um, but yeah, that kind of, um, uh, women's empowerment, yay kind Mm -hmm. of thing. But, um, at the same time as we can identify, that's what we have talked about, um, we need to get rid of the idea of waves. Mm-hmm. It's not helpful. Mm-hmm. It's not helpful for a few reasons. Firstly, we need to think about whose stories is it prioritise. Um, and we can see that these are very white stories. Mm-hmm. Um, they're very um, – uh, sorry. No, um, no, no. Yeah, they're very white stories. They're very much um, about saying here are big particular things that happened. Um, and – so we should kind of, in a sense, forget the rest. Mm. It's about saying it says suggests that nothing else was happening in between those waves, yeah. um, which is obviously not true. Mm. Um, feminist activists, activism, and feminist work is always ongoing. Um, it's also that um, you know who's what does it focus on? So if it's focusing on um, suffrage as this big marker, what's happening? You know, particularly with non-white women mm. um, at that same time. So, yeah, so it's kind of, you know, and I think a really good example of the kinds of ways in which feminist history writes, a feminist, what we call historiography, so the practice of writing the history, um, can do is, you know, if we think about something like abortion, and often, you know, you have, um, or movements for um, women's, you know, um, reproductive freedom, mm. you know, often it's... Um, obviously abortion needs to be available to everybody, but the campaigns around abortion are happening, that white women are are pursuing, happening at the same time as Indigenous women are saying, actually, we want to have kids. Mm. Like, let us have kids. Mm. Don't forcibly sterilise us. Don't Mm. steal our kids. Mm. Don't, you know, disrupt our families. And these things are going on at the same time. So to say that, you know, a moment is an abortion rights moment, it raises all of these Mm. other things that are going on. Um, So I think the idea of, waves is really kind of outdated mm. and i think a good you know 21st century feminist project is to say hey there's been feminist work happening across a very long period of time and let's focus on all of it mm. you know so there's another example is there's that um saying of like a well-behaved woman really makes history i was thinking about that in the shower this morning <laughs> <laughs> and how much i hate that saying i hate it passionately because it's not if you think about it from a, like a feminist history perspective it's saying that to make history, so by making history, it's saying to become noteworthy, to become someone that we would write about, mm. you have to do something that is misbehaving, mm. in quotation marks. Mm. But the, and, and that's one take on feminist history writing is to let's put in the big noteworthy women. Mm. But the other take is everybody does something that's historically worthy, right? Mm. Like everybody, and I guess that's, in a sense, the kind of history I'm really interested in writing is what are the everyday histories we write? Like each of us in this room, everybody listening has a really interesting life, mm. right? It's it's fulfilling. It's part of a long chain. Mm. It's going to create some kind of future. It's, mm. 
involved in something, we're all producing some sort of knowledge and culture and, and life and just life. And so a more interesting feminist history project is to say, what are all the things that are just going on in the everyday? Mm. Um, you can be well-behaved, whatever well-behaved might mean, yeah. um, and still be worthy of writing about. Mm. So I think that's kind of what I'm trying to say about the waves is, yeah, that's one way that historians have categorised things, but another feminist history project is to say these kinds of categorizations aren't useful mm. um, and instead let's talk about all the stuff that's happening as a long continuous process and project. Mm. So my next question was going to be um, are we currently in a wave of feminism but interestingly while you were talking I was thinking well that's really interesting because sometimes people say that the fourth wave of feminism is um, intersectional feminism which we'll get to Um which really feeds in, back into your point that, you know, the idea of intersectionality is to be highlighting what is not the main white Western narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, so really, I think you've just answered my question in a circular way, in a really <laughs> beautiful way, because that's it. Now is the time to kind of tear down that Western construct and, mm. and the one narrative being the narrative. Yep. Um, I love that. We might kick it to a song and come back for the rest of this interview with Dr. Jordana Silverstein on feminism and history. Welcome back to Summer School on 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. We are here in the studio with Dr. Jordana Silverstein talking about feminism. And hopefully now we're going to get into... um, labels, different types of feminism, um, because it's thrown around a lot. And, you know, I love accusing somebody of being a liberal feminist (laughs) myself. I'm very guilty of that. Um, But we do hear a lot about these terms, intersectional feminism, Mm. radical feminism, liberal feminism, white feminism. Mm. Um, And I was just wondering if you could talk us through a couple of those that we do hear the most about, just so people know, um, especially if it's being leveled at them, um, (laughs) what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess, yeah, the main one that's kind of talked about at the moment is intersectional or intersectionality. Mm -hmm. Um, It's, and I guess what a lot of people are losing is where it came from. Mm. Um, So it comes out of the US um, and it comes out of particularly African-American feminism. Mm. Um, So to throw a few names at you and the listeners. So it's people like Bell Hooks mm-hmm. um, is, you know, one of the first to use this term, the Combahee Rev- River Collective um, in their statement. So can look these things up and I can share some links um, on Twitter mm. um, afterwards. Um, writers like Gloria Anzaldúa um, wrote about this concept. So, but Kimberly Crenshaw is kind of the first um, mm key person to really formulate it um, in writing. And she did this in a 1989 um, academic article and Kimberly Crenshaw was a US-based legal professor, she's a law academic, and an article published in the University of Chicago Legal Forum called Demarginalising the Intersection of Race and Sex, a Black Feminist Critique of Anti-Discrimination Doctrine, Feminist Theory and Anti-Racist Politics. Um, That's a mouthful. It is a mouthful. I have that written down in front of me. I did not (laughs) memorize that. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I guess, you know, in that title, so demarginalizing the intersection of race and sex. So this is what we're thinking about when we're thinking about intersectionality is what are the intersections? Um, So we can think about a literal road um, or a path where two things cross over. And so we can think about what um, do they create. So that's the idea of intersectionality is this idea that um, most of us or everyone is not simply one thing. 
right? So I'm, you know, speaking as um, a uh, Jewish woman. Mm-hmm. Um, that necessarily informs who I am. I'm also, you know, many other things, mm-hmm. um, I guess, but they're the, kind of the key things that uh, I would say create my identity. Mm-hmm. Um, so that means that my both my Jewishness and my womanness are um, particular, mm-hmm. right? And they're created by the fact of them both existing. Um, so my womanness is different to every other uh, uh, every other woman's, mm-hmm. and not just Jewish, not just non-Jewish women's, but also Jewish women's, right? Because mm-hmm. we've all had different experiences. Because um, there's also things like class and mm-hmm. where do we live and nationality and ethnicity. Um, Jewishness is not one thing, of course. Um, so the fact that I'm, you know, from Holocaust survivor ancestors also means that this is another layer mm. to um, to things, you know, that I have, yeah, refugee ancestors um, creates um, something, you know, in, in the in the identity. But it's not just about identity. It's not just about how do you feel, but it's about the material um, aspects of that. Mm. How does that actually play out um, as both praxis, but also um, in the material conditions in which you live and how mm. we're treated by things like our employer, um, by the state, by the police, um, by all sorts of, of different things. Mm. Um, so it's, a, it's about how we are in the world, I guess, and how do we interact with each other. So... That kind of um, – it's now often, particularly, again, emerging out of the US, intersectionality is kind of used as this kind of tool or weapon and it's seen as this um, bad thing and mm. it's seen as part of this, uh, often by many, um, I'd say not on the left, um, see it this way and, and see it as kind of this part of this bad thing called identity politics, which is this bad, bad thing, which is obviously not this bad thing because we all have identities and we all have politics and, and those things go together and, and – we all kind of work from from um, our backgrounds. So, yeah, it has come up again recently, but I think intersectionality is both a really helpful explanatory tool mm. um, and I think has a strong empirical basis to it, so a strong, like, explanatory um, or, or way of explaining kind of what I think is going on, mm. I think. Um, but it's also a really useful critical tool and a way to think about how do we want to be in the world and how can we be in the world. Um, and I'll also share, so a few years ago I um, facilitated a conversation with Crystal McKinnon, who I think you had earlier on mm-hmm. um, in the series. It's Crystal McKinnon, Ruth D'Souza, um, Samia Katun and and, um, uh, and Carol. And we, um, we did a, a conversation around intersectionality from an Australian perspective um, that's up online on the Women's Australian Women's History Network blog mm. um, that I will sh- also share the link with. Thank you. you. Um, if you don't what a lineup. Have it. Oh yeah, God. it's pretty great. They're pretty. It's a pretty great piece. Um, I think has lots of useful stuff. Mm, thank you. So then, yeah, there's like liberal feminism, which I guess, um, you know, yeah. <laughs> What's a liberal? <laughs> What's a liberal feminist? So we're talking small L liberal. Um, so liberal, yeah, as a descriptor of a political system. Mm. And I guess the, my, um, easiest way to describe it would be, um, that it's about saying, um, we don't want to like change the system, but we want more women in the system. Um, so. Perfect. Yeah. So, um, and obviously like I'm not a liberal feminist, so I don't mean to be disparaging, um, to any liberal feminists mm-hmm. out there or disparaging my description, but I think that's the, the neatest explanation of it. So it's about saying 
not, um, you know, ACAP, um, let's get rid of cops, let's re- radically rethink our criminal justice system, mm. but right. instead let's have more women cops. Yeah. Let's have more women in the army. Mm. Um, let's have more women on boards and in boardrooms and mm. as CEOs and millionaires and mm. let's have more women doing the things that men do. Um, well, and let's have more women in the Lib Party, I think yeah. is a really good example at the moment of that mm. idea in the news yep. rather than reform a party that systematically keeps women yes. living in entrenched poverty. Mm. Let's yep. just more women in the party. Like yep. it's, yeah, exactly. Mm. Let's, you know, have a woman prime minister mm. um, and let's say Presiding that, over a colonial state that, yeah. Exactly. And say, yeah, these are inherently good things. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, if, going back to like what is feminism, I think feminism is also not necessarily about saying all women do good things mm. um, and supporting women to do whatever they want. But, yeah, like <laughs> noting, yes, we don't want a colonial state. Mm. Like mm. Australia as it currently exists is not an acceptable project. Yeah. Um, so the feminist project is about radically restructuring mm. it, um, whatever this is. It's about, you know, actual decolonisation. Mm. Um, yeah. So I guess that's how I'd describe liberal feminism. You did that so nicely as oh, well. You, do, you, you wouldn't have offended anybody. <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> Julia <laughs> Banks is not listening yeah, and no. I'm enraged <laughs> with you. <laughs> but this was, I don't like, at uni and, you know, the student union and mm. feminist activism, this was a real discussion, particularly mm. with the ALP left, who mm. we worked with quite a bit um, when I was in the student union. And, yeah, like there's women in there who obviously there's women in the ALP left who are liberal feminists. Like yeah. that's what they're doing and, and it's a real sticking point, I think. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Um, God, we could really talk about that one. Yeah. <laughs> so then radical has come up mm. a lot um, and I think, it, you know, it can mean so many different things. Yeah. But when we say radical feminist, God, what a dirty word that yes. is. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's one of those ones that's like when you first hear it, you think that sounds real cool. Mm. Um, I want to be part of that. It's radical. It's feminist. What could be wrong? Yeah. The problem is, and I think a lot of us particularly, you know, I, I didn't grow up um, a feminist or schooled in feminist thinking and, you know, it's something I kind of came to at university. Mm. Um, having definitely like had a critical brain at high school, but not have language or the knowledge or, mm. you know, having the classes mm-hmm. to, to know about it. Yeah. I think, yeah, probably a lot of people have that. Um, and so, you know, if you went to Melbourne Uni, um, I didn't, but a lot of people would have taken she- Sheila Jeffries' class. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, like that's the big one that people take. And, and so she's sort of a key Australian radical feminist. Mm-hmm. So it's about... Um, um, I guess it, it's very much um, woman-centred. Mm-hmm. It's very much about, um, and again, I, I, I don't mean to um, parody or, or, or talk down, but at the same time there are necessary critiques mm-hmm. of radical feminism. But I think it's the emphasis is on patriarchy as the overarching oppressor. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very much not intersectional. Um, it's very white. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very um, anti-trans, and I guess people would be familiar with terms like turf and swerf. Mm-hmm. Um, so trans, ex- yeah. trans exclusionary <laughs> radical feminist, and swerf is sex worker exclusionary radical feminist. Um, so they're good descriptors. So radical feminists are vehemently anti-trans and, and don't see the possibility um, of transness. Um, and see it as a big one and a big patriarchal way to take over sort of the women's movement. Mm. It's very much about 
the women's movement. Um, so, so radical feminism, I mean, is very much about the women's movement and very much not about, I guess, gender mm. um, as a system. Um, yeah, so I think it's kind of – a lot of people, I think, go through a phase – and and kind of then phase out of being of reading radical feminism. Mm. Um, at the same time, I think you know there's a lot in there that for many people is really interesting and useful and uh, and, and life changing. And mm. reading some of those writers absolutely was life changing for me. Um, yeah. So, but I guess there is this really important critique mm. um, of radical feminism, and very much I think because it has that enticing name yeah we, um we were yeah. saying that before in yeah. the break how it it sounds like it would be radical <laughs> yeah it sounds like it would, you know including everybody mm. in a movement yeah. sounds radical but yeah so i guess the radicalness is about in a sense so it's kind of like lesbian feminist separatism is part of radical feminism mm. so the idea of like women should firstly all be lesbians uh-huh. um and secondly, should separate completely from men, mm-hmm. which is quite a radical thought, right? Mm-hmm. What if we had these completely separate societies? Um, so it definitely has a radicalness mm-hmm. to it. Mm-hmm. But I think it's um, also sort of emerged in the 1960s and 1970s, mm-hmm. again, very much in the US, but then and, and England and, and spread around. Um, yeah, so I think it doesn't kind of fit in with this moment, particularly in a in Australia and the US, which is very much about sectionality, mm. which is very much, you know, if, if they, we're going to talk about, a, you know, a wave or a moment in Australia at the moment, I'd say so clearly, you know, the most important, the most exciting, the most mm. transformative um, feminist writing and thinking is coming from Aboriginal women. Mm. Absolutely. You know, that's yeah. definitely um, what's going on uh, at the moment. Mm. So, and that, and radical feminism doesn't really have much to say to that, mm. I would say. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so devastated to say that we're out of time. time. No! Yeah. Awesome. Um, no, I know. No, sorry. I, I talk too long. Don't be sorry at all. I'm always, I always overestimate with you. I send so many questions and then I'm like, why did you do that? Um, but in terms of writers and thinkers, you've mm. mentioned some um, some great resources today. Perhaps I will um, hit you up after the show and we can put some links up on the internet yep. um, on our Tuesday Brecky page and our Twitters because um, I would love to Perfect. pick your brain more about that. Yeah, cool. Thank you so much for joining okay. us. Yeah, thanks Had for having Dr. me. Jordana Silverstein from Melbourne Uni in the studio and you are listening to 3CR. Have you ever wondered about the meaning of the terms identity politics? intersectionality, turf, or institutional racism. Same here. This summer, Tuesday Breakfast is going back to school to answer these questions and more. Join us as we learn from experts, academics, writers, activists, and people with lived experiences to share their knowledge on decolonization, sovereignty and self-determination, race and identity, sexuality and gender, and disability and accessibility. Knowledge shouldn't be locked away at a university, so let us bring it to you. Tune in to Summer School, Tuesday mornings from 7am, starting the 8th of January, 855am or via 3cr.org.au. And check out our Instagram, 3CR Tuesday Breakfast, for more details. We have no justice in this country and we still face systemic racism and ongoing violence at the hands of the Australian state. 
That is why we protest. That is why we march. Please join us this Invasion Day and condemn the ongoing violence, ongoing theft, the ongoing discrimination we as Indigenous people across so-called Australia face. Meet on Saturday the 26th of January at 10.30am at the Steps of Parliament. Organisers have asked for supporters to wear black and bring flowers. For more information, visit the Warriors of the Aboriginal Resistance page on Facebook. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. We are doing episode three of our very special summer school program and we're unpacking feminism today. Next up, we're very, very excited to have Kamna Mudagauni in the studio with us. Kamna is a writer and anti-discrimination lawyer based in Nam. Having migrated from Mumbai, she now lives on the stolen land of the Kulin Nation. Kamna is currently a senior lawyer in the Equality Law Program at Victoria Legal Aid and a board member of Fair Agenda. Thank you so much for joining us today, Kamna. Thank you so much for having me. You describe yourself as a third culture kid. Firstly, what is that and what does feminism mean to you personally um, in terms of, of that identity? Sure. Um, I guess a third culture kid identity is something that I only found sort of in the past few years of my life and it was the first time that I kind of realised, oh, there is something that kind of describes me outside um, the binary of sort of being um, from the predominant culture or a minority culture. Um, mm. I it, it, I mean, as a term, it's sort of a term that w- arose out of the 1950s, I think, in the US um, to describe children or young people who um, spend sort of the majority or a large part of their formative years or developmental years in a culture that is other than their parents' culture. Mm. Um, And so to me that kind of has two layers in a way um, because uh, thinking outside a Western-centric layer, I kind of was a third culture kid before I even came to Australia. Um, Mm. My mother is Malayali from Kerala in India and my father is Telugu from um, Andhra Pradesh or what is now Telangana in India but I was born and raised in Mumbai um, until I was about six and so in in a sense I was already being raised in a culture that was outside the predominant cultures of my parents before I even migrated to Australia Mm. Um, and then I guess maybe I'm a fourth culture kid because then moving over here when I was six um, and having spent all of my life the majority of my life since in Melbourne or Australia, Mm. um, I have, um, I guess, formed a part of my predominant identity in a culture that is totally different um, from being uh, sort of raised in India or raised in the cultural environments that my parents grew up in. Mm. But I think um, another aspect of sort of being a third culture kid is not just place or location, but also how you see yourselves or what what, what your identity is starts to form and I think one theme I see is that you might have less of a connection to sort of specific cultural um, signifiers but about your relationship to those cultural signifiers so Mm. for example um, you're less kind of influenced by um, things that might be around you or you might not build those solid um, relationships with um, or get a sense of belonging from those things that your parents might experience as being strong cultural signifiers, but you still have some relationship mm. to them that does provide meaning. Yeah. Um, the second part of your question, sorry, mm. I went for a bit long. <laughs> um, feminism. Uh, feminism, I guess it's interesting because 
obviously there's so many um, people out there that say, oh, I'm not a feminist because I care about all humanity or we all bleed red, etc., <laughs> which <laughs> is not me. But um, I think for I think when I was growing up, like I really struggled. I I strongly sort of had a sense that feminism was something that mattered to me, but it didn't read as something that included me for so long Mm. um in the sense of sort of the radical um or not even radical just like the feminist theory Mm. that I was even exposed to um when I was in early university was it was something that was very seeing as um gender as the primary sort of form of revolt against Mm. structural um violence or structural um oppression Mm. and to me that was never um the primary lens through which I saw myself Mm. um and so I think it's only really when I've um had the privilege and um sort of uh generosity of women around me who have similar experiences to me um or non-binary people who have similar experiences to me that don't fit into sort of singular identities and still can promote um, the destruction of sort of structural forms of gender-based um oppression that I've I've come to embrace sort of what feminism really means yeah. to me. Yeah. It really reminds me of the time when I found out what a feminist was. It's something that you grow up thinking about, you know, the inequality and, and how to make that better and all of that, but there's no term for it. Your life experiences shape what that is to you. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, for me personally, my mind was blown when I heard the term white feminism and everything sort of fell into place at that time. Could you maybe talk about that a little bit? What is white feminism? And yeah, what are examples of those? Um, sure. I, I think like in terms of how to define white feminism, I, I guess what it was going back to what I thought of um, mm. said before is um, women who sort of experience or promote um, or place in a primary position gender or sex as their main sort of form of um, revolt against structural mm. systems mm. Um, and so their um, their interest in feminism reaches to the extent of sexism and misogyny and the patriarchy but ref- um, sort of don't provide enough spaces or provide enough places of leadership really to voices mm. that oppose other structures mm. that also cause violence to women and non-binary people mm. um so you know white feminism is caring about the me too movement but not put placing primary position to tirana but who started that movement mm. out of wanting to provide um essentially structural support to marginalised women, um, black and brown women in the US who experience experience sexual assault. Mm. Um, White feminism is, you know, going along to women's marches but not standing in solidarity with um, Indigenous people in the struggle against the colonised state. Mm. Um, Mm. It's this idea that um, somehow if we dismantle the patriarchy, everything's going to be okay, Mm. Um, when really... To me, that's not the foundation of sort of a, yeah. a, a movement that would um, create the freedom of all women or non-binary people at all. Yeah. And we, I mean, we've been talking a lot about structures and, mm. and the oppression in structures. Um, could you maybe talk to us about what structural sexism is? Is that something you encounter in your work as a lawyer, both in terms of being a, a brown female lawyer, but also the clients you interact with and the advocacy work that you do? Sure. Um 
Structural sexism is interesting. It's not a a phrase or a term that I use a lot or hear a lot, but um, I guess it's useful when you look at what sexism means. I think a lot of people think of sexism as um, individual choices that Mm. individuals make to treat certain genders or sexes less better than like the predominant one, which is a sense of, you know, cis men. Um, But really the extent to which sexism um, impacts people uh, is really sort of quite privileged people in that like if your life is going okay except for the fact that certain individuals um, treat you differently because of your gender. I mean that's a shit thing obviously but Mm. it's it doesn't sort of take into the layers of sort of other um, I guess disadvantage or marginalization a person couldn't experience. So structural sexism I guess recognizes that that Um, disadvantageous or unfavourable treatment is embedded in the structures that form our society. So it's not Mm. just um, sort of individuals who make the choice to treat um, women less favourably, but it's within the structures that we operate in. So whether it be our um, sort of uh, political structures or communal structures or, you know, family structures, it's it's, it's something that's embedded in those layers. Mm. So in my work um, as a lawyer I think um sure in in the sense of like the legal profession um at least Australia uh is still and especially you know I've been a lawyer for about six or seven years now and um it's sort of always still has this face of sort of a um a person that isn't me you know like um the whilst it's becoming more representative and there's always been leaders before me that, you know, in this country have um, tried to change to the face of that, the way in which it operates still very much um, white cis male sort of centred and white cis male of a particular class, I think. And Mm. when it includes others, it still expects those people to um, behave within certain behavioural norms or standards that Mm. reflect that so it's not enough that the face looks different or that the people that make it up look different but as Mm. a profession it can still um value behaviors and um norms that reflect those structures yeah um in terms of my work structural sexism is something that comes up quite a bit i think because it's that sort of um intangible layer underneath um the discrimination that a lot of women um experience Mm. so it's um, I think the way that, and we can probably get into this a little bit more, yeah. but the way that laws are built um, mm. in our society and in lots of societies around the world is mm. that they reflect um, standards of what we say should be lawful and not lawful, um, and they're made by our representatives, mm. but um, a lot of those structures historically or even currently don't sort of represent the people that they make are meant to be governing and that's not to say that entire legal systems are invalid because of that but Mm. it does show that sort of um, they're embedded in principles such as objectivity and embedded in principles such as Mm. judgment and um, being able to make a decision this way or the other Um, and so in in doing that and creating that nature it kind of then does place this onus to try and um, prove that something happened because of individual actions or um, sort of evidence-based, I guess, um, principles of sort of whether something happened or not. But structural sexism can be harder to prove because um, whilst 
sometimes it's so obvious. Like if you walk into a workplace and everyone in leadership looks a particular way um, and sort of the face of what that organisation's meant to stand for looks a particular way, mm. um, then you can tell that that structure in and of itself is not likely to treat an individual as well as maybe other individuals, mm. but it's harder to prove within the legal framework, so yeah. to speak. Yeah. yeah. I think, yeah, we really do want to get into the intersection between feminism and the legal system. <laughs> and it's really interesting the things that you've mentioned because I remember in law school the reasonable man being sort of the standard um, on which behaviours are, you know, thought of and criminalised. And, but what is a reasonable man? It's not, it's not me. It's not any of us in this room. Um, so we'll get into that in a bit, I think. We might take a very quick break just to reflect on what's been happening so far. Sure. Listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR, in the studio we have Lauren, George, Ayan and myself, Anya, and we are talking to Kamna Muragawni about everything uh, feminism and the legal system. Kamna, let's talk about the work you do as an anti-discrimination lawyer. Mm -hmm. In your experience, does the legal system adequately recognise and address intersectionality in feminism? (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah, I think... It's hard. It's hard mm. because I think um, I don't think personally that intersectionality is any way, anywhere near being sort of addressed or even thought of in most structural or societal um, sort of systems in our country. Like mm. um, I think intersectionality is so in- important as a concept, and I think language, having language to describe um, what it is that we are meant to do as a task, is really important. Mm. But um, it only gets you so far, so far. And I feel like in my personal experience, most of um, the prevalence of intersectionality is really in giving voice or language to those who haven't had the language to express that. Um, but there's so much more action to be had before that represents the world that we live in, mm. um, in our communities, in our societies and in our legal system. So um I work as an anti-discrimination lawyer. Discrimination laws, in my opinion, in this country do not yet probably understand intersectionality. Um, Intersectionality from a legal framework might come into it without using that terminology in a little way when um, a person with sort of various different attributes has been marginalised or discriminated on the basis of those all those different attributes, then the law recognises then that can have a compounding effect on the person in the mm-hmm. sense of if they're understanding what compensation should be paid or understanding the loss that that person suffers. Mm-hmm. So um, judges and tribunal members don't sort of say, I'm applying an intersectional framework mm-hmm. to understand that this is compounding your harm. Mm-hmm. But in a way, uh, you know, as a lawyer that understands intersectionality, it's the argument that I would be making for my clients mm. who do have those layers of sort of why um, certain behaviours have impacted them more. Mm. But in terms of the legal system, I think that there's um, some way to go before intersectionality is really thought of, whether it be in a criminal legal system or uh, a civil legal system or, mm. you know, family mm. um, legal system. But I don't know that that to me is maybe something that comes after I have a sense that we understand it as a society, mm. applying it within a legal framework and the legal system without having those um, that knowledge embedded in sort of, you know, the average person yeah. in the community is dangerous in a way because I think laws should be normative. They should influence the way people behave, mm. but they also have to be reflective and responsive and mm. um the last thing you need is sort of laws that then alienate sort of people who don't understand what that concept 
mm. um, is and therefore don't take them seriously. Mm. It almost sounds like intersectionality is thought of at the end of a legal process, right, when it comes to compensation mm. and sentencing and that sort of thing, but really it should be right from the beginning. Yeah, and it, is, mm. and it is done um, in sort of there's amazing community organisations and amazing organisations that understand intersectionality. Um, mm. Particularly, I want to sort of give a shout-out to JIRA, which is um, used to be the um, Aboriginal Family Violence Prevention system and mm. they get it they get the way that um uh the sort of way family violence is thought of through a legal framework doesn't understand the intersectionality of experiences of aboriginal and torres Strait Islander women and so they do it from the start um mm. but in terms of yeah legal policy and legal decision making i mean you look at our parliaments they don't seem that intersectional mm. framework so i would be surprised if that's how laws are coming out yeah, yeah. In your ideal world, what what would a feminist legal system look like? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, it's hard to sort of say that what my ideal world is without giving credit to thinkers and Mm. communities before me and um, black women, um, whether they be Aboriginal black women or um, black women of African heritage have Mm. been um, rallying from the start about what a feminist legal system would look like and that's focused on abolition and transformative justice Mm. Um, and I think particularly in a criminal justice framework which is not what I work in and so is not my daily work Mm. um, there's arguments for how the removal of structures that in and of themselves create patriarchal oppression um, and white supremacist oppression is what is needed to create a feminist legal system Mm. Um, so I, I want to give primacy to that position, um, but I think in terms of sort of a feminist legal framework or system for um, experiencing discrimination law, it's one that sort of understands that um, there might not always be individuals that um, can be point the finger can be pointed at to say you treated me badly because of this reason and that's why um, I was discriminated, but um, a recognition of structures within sort of um, workplaces and systems that add to that that are outside of individual choice because I think feminism needs to, if it has any value, understand structures as well as individual choices. Mm. Um, these are really interesting discussions that we're having. Do you have any favourite feminist legal scholars or work that you'd like to tell our listeners about? Um, I spend a lot of my time consuming pop culture, <laughs> not feminist legal theory. <laughs> Um, I think, uh, which might be a surprise, but um, I think, like, I, to be completely honest, mm. didn't haven't really ever read that much feminist legal theory that's that's meant much to me. I yep. remember reading it in university and thinking um, it was a bit second wave, kind mm-hmm. of. Um, but I think that um, if you want to be look, thinking at amazing feminist legal thinkers, one person I would talk about is um, Professor Megan Davis, who Mm. in fact um, is sort of a really key thinker and actor in terms of sort of Aboriginal sovereignty in this country um, and understanding that concept and talks really in an amazingly insightful way about what... um, you know, what Makarata looks like in this country. And I think that if we want to be thinking about feminist legal theory, we've got to start Indigenous sovereignty. Yeah. Kamna, we can keep talking about this for hours, but unfortunately we're running out of time. But thank you so much for coming. Thanks so much for having me, everyone.
And so that's it for our summer school on feminism today on 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. Mm. Next week we'll be back with sexuality. sexuality. <laughs> I don't know why we said it like <laughs> that. <laughs> Um, with some great guests, including Claire Coleman, the author of the book Terra Nullius. So if people would like to tune in sometime next week. And thank you, big thank you to all our guests this week. It's been an awesome show. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.